welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Shooter, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 113, Nine Steps to Optimal Blood Pressure. In last week's post and podcast episode, Five Reasons to Think Twice Before Taking Blood Pressure Drugs, I highlighted the major adverse effects of some of the most popular classes of blood pressure-lowering medications that are taken by an estimated 3 million Australians and hundreds of millions more throughout the world. I also stress that high blood pressure, or hypertension, is a silent killer because it is, quote, the leading global risk factor for cardiovascular, renal, neurological, and ophthalmologic diseases, end quote. Antihypertensive drugs are fairly good at lowering blood pressure, but not so crash hold at reducing the risk of the hypertension-associated conditions that actually kill people or disable them so much that they might wish they were dead. In the post accompanying this podcast episode, I've reproduced a table from a study called Are Preventive Drugs Preventive Enough? A Study of Patients' Expectation of Benefit from Preventive Drugs. And as you'll see if you take a close look at that table, it's only when blood pressure is in the severely elevated range that antihypertensive drugs produce clinically meaningful reductions in outcomes that patients fear, such as death, stroke or heart failure. So, for example, when the ACE inhibitor Ramipril was given to high-risk patients in the HOPE study, it reduced the risk of all deaths by 15% and the risk of any heart attack, either fatal or non-fatal, by 20%. When Enalapril, another ACE inhibitor, was given to people who had already had a heart attack, it reduced the risk of all deaths by only 6%. And when Carvedilol, which is a beta blocker, was given to people post-heart attack, it reduced the risk of all deaths by 20%. Those numbers that I just cited are all relative risk reductions. Again, if you take a look at the table that I've reproduced in the post accompanying this podcast episode, you'll see that absolute risk reductions are, quite frankly, pitiful. It's only when you get to hypertensives with a diastolic blood pressure in a range between 115 and 129 millimeters of mercury that you see really impressive results, a 93% relative risk reduction of death, stroke, or heart failure in this particular category of patients. By the way, that's an absolute risk reduction of 36.3%. The reason why antihypertensive drugs aren't particularly impressive at preventing hypertension-related conditions or reducing the risk of death is that they do not address the underlying causes of elevated blood pressure. What does address those causes? A comprehensive diet and lifestyle modification program. Following are the essential elements of such a program and make sure you keep listening until the very end of this podcast because I'm saving the most effective intervention until last. So here we go. Number one, weight loss or more specifically visceral fat loss. There is a strong and direct relationship between excess body weight and blood pressure. Even when using a relatively insensitive metric such as body mass index or BMI, which does not distinguish between lean and fat mass, it's abundantly clear that the larger one's body, the higher one's blood pressure. For example, in a study conducted in 7,907 community-living Italian adults, hypertension was found in 
45% of participants with a BMI in the normal range, that's at least for Caucasians, between 18.5 and 24.9 kilograms per meter squared. Hypertension was found in 67% of those with a BMI in the overweight range, that's a BMI between 25 and 29.9 kilograms per meter squared. Hypertension was found in 79% of people with obesity class 1 and 2, that's a BMI between 30 and 39.99 kilograms per meter squared, and up to 87% of participants with obesity class 3, that's a BMI of over 40 kilograms per meter squared, were hypertensive. Likewise, the Nurses' Health Study 2 found that overweight and obesity was the strongest risk factor for developing hypertension. Quote, in this population, 40% of new hypertension cases could hypothetically be attributed to overweight or obesity, defined as a BMI greater than or equal to 25 kilograms per meter squared, and 50% of new cases could hypothetically be attributed to a BMI greater than 23, end quote. That quote is from a study called Diet and Lifestyle Risk Factors Associated with Incident Hypertension in Women. A 2020 review came to even more dramatic conclusions, estimating that 65 to 78% of cases of primary hypertension were attributable to obesity. Gaining even small amounts of weight increases your risk of developing high blood pressure. For example, in the long-running Framingham Heart Study, participants who gained just 5% of their body weight over four years of follow-up had 20 to 30% increased odds of hypertension. That's a mere 3.5 kilograms of weight gain for a 70 kilo individual. Conversely, even modest weight loss can decrease blood pressure. In the Trials of Hypertension Prevention, or TOHP2 study, overweight and obese participants who lost at least 4.5 kilos and kept it off for the next 2.5 years reduced their risk of developing hypertension by 65%. Excess body fat raises blood pressure via a number of mechanisms, many of them interlocking. The first of those mechanisms is overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system or the fear-fight-flight arm of the autonomic nervous system. The second, stimulation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, a complex system of hormones, proteins and enzymes that regulates blood pressure over the long term. The third mechanism is alterations in cytokines or cell signaling molecules that are derived from adipose tissue such as leptin. The fourth mechanism, insulin resistance, and the fifth, changes to the structure and function of the kidneys. Most studies have found that accumulation of excess visceral adipose tissue, or VAT, that's the deep belly fat that wraps around and intrudes into your abdominal and pelvic organs, is more strongly associated with the development of hypertension than subcutaneous fat. That's the fat that accumulates just under the skin. Furthermore, VAT, again that's visceral adipose tissue, is strongly associated with treatment-resistant blood pressure, that is blood pressure that remains elevated despite the use of three or more medications. For example, men with newly detected untreated essential hypertension, that's high blood pressure with no other medical cause, had 60% more VAT than non-hypertensive men, as well as reduced insulin sensitivity. And in a study of 3,363 Danish individuals, those with the most VAT, but not subcutaneous adipose tissue, or SAT, were the most likely to either have hypertension at baseline or to develop it at five-year follow-up. However, in a study of 1,899 Japanese individuals, there was a stepwise increase in risk of hypertension with greater subcutaneous fat area in the abdominal region. The bottom line is that if you're carrying excess body fat, especially around your midsection, you're at heightened risk of developing hypertension. And if you lose weight, you'll lower your blood pressure. But there are many diets out there that are touted for weight loss and health improvement. 
are any dietary patterns superior when it comes to taming hypertension? That brings us to intervention number two, a plant-forward diet. It's been known for nearly a century that vegetarians and vegans have lower blood pressure than omnivores and that reintroducing meat to the diet of vegetarians raises their blood pressure. More recently, evidence has accumulated that people who get most or all of their calories from plant foods also have a lower BMI, less visceral adipose tissue, and better insulin sensitivity. Next, I'm going to summarize just a tiny sample of the many observational and experimental studies confirming these relationships. And for many more, just go to the post accompanying this podcast episode. There is a link to the discussion section of one particular study that references many of these other studies. And I've also linked to the free archive.org version of chapter 8 of a particular book that covers this subject in detail. Let's start with observational studies. Number one, Seventh-day Adventist or SDA vegetarians have lower blood pressure and BMI than Mormons. Now, Mormons share the SDA's religiosity and their avoidance of alcohol, caffeine and tobacco, but not their dietary prescriptions. Vegetarian SDA men also have lower blood pressure than omnivorous SDAs. Number two, in the Oxford cohort of the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition, abbreviated EPIC Oxford, average systolic and diastolic blood pressures were found to be highest in meat eaters, lowest in vegans, and intermediate in fish eaters and vegetarians. 15% of male and 12.1% of female meat eaters reported that they had hypertension, versus 5.8% of male and 7.7% of female vegans. Among participants with no self-reported hypertension, mediating men's age-adjusted blood pressure was, on average, 4.2 over 2.6 millimetres of mercury higher than vegan men's. Meat-eating women had blood pressure that was 2.8 over 1.7 millimetres of mercury higher than vegan women. Like blood pressure, BMI was highest in the meat-eaters and lowest in the vegans, with the fish-eaters and vegetarians having similar and intermediate values. And this difference in BMI accounted for much of the difference in blood pressure between diet groups. Saturated fat intake was positively associated with systolic blood pressure, or SBP, in both sexes. That is, the more saturated fat consumed, the higher the SBP while the polyunsaturated to saturated fat ratio was inversely associated with blood pressure. That is, the more polyunsaturated fat consumed in proportion to saturated fat, the lower the blood pressure. Number three, in the coronary artery risk development in young adults, or CARDIA study, 4,304 participants who were aged between 18 and 30 and had normal blood pressure at baseline were followed up for 15 years. After adjusting for a number of potential confounding factors, there was an inverse relationship between intake of plant foods, including grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and legumes, and the risk of developing elevated blood pressure. Those with the highest plant food intake had a 36% lower risk of developing elevated blood pressure than those with the lowest intake of plant foods. BMI and waist circumference were also inversely correlated with plant food intake. That is, the more plants that went in the mouth, the smaller the waistline. Even though participants who reported eating the most plants had a higher self-reported energy, that is calorie or kilojoule intake. Conversely, consumption of red and processed meat was positively associated with the risk of developing elevated blood pressure, even after adjustment for possible confounding factors. There was a dose-response relationship, meaning the higher the meat intake, the higher the blood pressure. And number four, the Intermap study found that for every 2.8% increase in calories from vegetable protein, 
Participants had 2.14 millimeters of mercury lower systolic blood pressure and 1.35 millimeters of mercury lower diastolic pressure. And now let's look at interventional trials. Number one, in a randomized crossover trial of staff at the Royal Perth Hospital, 59 healthy omnivorous adults aged between 25 and 63 experience a drop of 5.6 millimeters of mercury in their systolic and 2.3 millimeters of mercury in their diastolic pressure after six weeks on a seven-day Adventist-style lacto-over-vegetarian diet. After resuming their regular omnivorous diet, their blood pressures rose once again. Participants were instructed to eat more if they noticed they were losing weight. Hence, there were no significant declines in body weight during the vegetarian diet period. Number two, 500 adults with an average age of 58 participated in an intensive 12-day live-in program during which they ate a low-fat vegan diet. Despite most medications being stopped or reduced on the first day of the program, average blood pressure declined by 6% by the end of 12 days, with average falls of 9 over 4 millimeters of mercury. Participants with the highest blood pressure at the outset of the program experienced the greatest declines. For those with higher than 140 over 90 millimeters of mercury on entry, the average reduction in blood pressure was 17 over 13 millimeters of mercury. Men lost on average 2.5 kilos by the 12th day and women lost 1 kilo. Number 3. 21 strict vegetarians agreed to eat 250 grams of beef per day for four weeks, substituting it for an equal calorie value of their usual fare, and then to revert to their normal vegetarian diet for another four weeks. During the meat-eating period, their average systolic blood pressure increased by 3%. And number 4. Young healthy men and healthy elderly men and women were fed a weight-maintaining, high-carbohydrate, high-fiber, low-fat diet. So in this diet, Carbohydrates supplied roughly 68% of energy intake, the fiber intake was between 70 and 100 grams per day, and fat comprised around 14% of daily energy. They ate this high-carbohydrate, high-fiber, low-fat diet for one week, and during this period, fasting glucose fell by 5% and insulin by 24%, indicating improved insulin sensitivity. These effects were reversed in less than two weeks after participants resumed their normal diets. The third intervention is reduction of salt intake to evolutionarily appropriate levels across the lifespan. According to the Australian Burden of Disease study, roughly 21% of the high blood pressure burden in Australia is due to a diet high in sodium. But what exactly does high in sodium mean? In my previous article and podcast episode, a truly low salt diet lowers blood pressure as effectively as medicine in one week. I discussed the pioneering work of S. Boyd Eaton and Melvin Connor, who launched the field of Paleolithic diet research. Quote, In their seminal paper, Paleolithic Nutrition, a consideration of its nature and current implications, which was published in 1985, Eaton and Connor extrapolated from data gathered from extant hunter-gatherer populations to estimate an average daily total intake of 690 milligrams of sodium in the Paleolithic diet, with a potassium to sodium ratio of just over 16 to 1. Current average sodium intake is roughly 10 times that of our ancient ancestors, and potassium intake now lags behind sodium, a complete inversion of the ratio between these two vital nutrients that shape the development of the human kidneys, cardiovascular, and endocrine systems, end quote. As a consequence, quote, in every human population that uses salt, blood pressure rises with age in stark contrast to communities that do not use salt, such as the isolated Yanomami people who inhabit the Venezuelan rainforest, end quote. 
In that previous article, I also shared the results of a study that assigned participants aged between 50 and 75 years in random order to one week on a high-sodium diet, which comprised their regular diet, plus an additional 2,200 milligrams of sodium per day in the form of Beyond Cubes, and one week on a low-sodium diet, which contained approximately 500 milligrams of sodium per day. 25% of participants in this study had normal blood pressure, 20% had medication-controlled hypertension, 31% had uncontrolled hypertension, and 25% had untreated hypertension. 73% of participants experienced a drop in blood pressure when they switched from a high to a low-sodium diet, with an average systolic blood pressure difference of 8 millimeters of mercury between the high-sodium and low-sodium diet periods, which was, as the authors pointed out, quote, comparable with a commonly used first-line antihypertensive medication, end quote. I urge you to read or listen to that previous article or podcast episode in its entirety in order to grasp the wide range of adverse consequences of the virtually lifelong overexposure to sodium that is typical of both developed and developing nations. Number four in our nine steps to optimal blood pressure, alcohol reduction or abstinence. The risk of developing hypertension increases in a linear fashion with alcohol consumption. The more drinks per week, the higher the blood pressure. Conversely, reducing alcohol intake brings blood pressure down. In a 2017 systematic review and meta-analysis, blood pressure decreased when people who drank more than two standard drinks per day reduced their alcohol consumption to near abstinence. The greatest reductions that's an average blood pressure decrease of 5.5 over 3.97 millimeters of mercury, were seen in participants who drank six or more drinks per day if they halved their intake. Number five, exercise and reduction in sedentary behavior. Many people assume that they can offset time spent sitting on their butts by going to the gym or jogging, but it turns out that the more hours you spend in a seated position each day, the higher your systolic blood pressure, even if you also engage in intentional, moderate to vigorous physical activity. When it comes to intentional exercise, it turns out that isometric resistance, that's exercises that hold the body in one position, with muscles contracted but not changing length, is the most effective at lowering blood pressure. A 2013 systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials lasting four or more weeks investigating the effects of exercise in healthy adults found the following reductions in blood pressure. For endurance training, the reduction was 3.5 millimeters of mercury for systolic over 2.5 millimeters of mercury for diastolic. For dynamic resistance training, that's typical weight or strength training, it was 1.8 over 3.2 millimeters of mercury. For isometric resistance, it was 10.9 over 6.2 millimeters of mercury. And for combined training, there was no reduction in systolic pressure and a 2.2 millimeter of mercury reduction in diastolic. Greater reductions were seen in people who already had higher than ideal blood pressure. For example, after endurance training, hypertensive participants' blood pressure dropped by 8.3 over 5.2 millimeters of mercury. But in pre-hypertensives, blood pressure fell by only 2.1 over 1.7 millimeters of mercury. And in people with normal blood pressure, the drop was only 0.75 over 1.1 millimeters of mercury. In other words, exercise is a medicine that works best for those who need it most. Number six, sleep optimization. Sleep deprivation, insomnia, sleep disruption due to restless leg syndrome, and obstructive sleep apnea all increase the risk of developing hypertension. 
people who sleep less than five hours per night have up to a 72% higher prevalence of hypertension, while in young adults, each hour of reduced sleep was associated with a 37% increase in the odds of developing hypertension. On the other hand, sleeping for longer than nine hours is associated with 30% higher odds of hypertension compared with individuals sleeping seven to eight hours. The sweet spot for sleep does appear to be seven to eight hours per night for adults. If you suffer from obstructive sleep apnea, you really should listen to my interview with Dr. Jessica Funk, which I have a link to in the post accompanies podcast episode. And if you suffer from restless leg syndrome, tune into my deep dive webinar on this topic on Tuesday the 27th of February, that's 2024 for those of you listening in the future, or you can watch the replay by joining my EmpowerEd membership program. And I have a link to the page where you can learn more about EmpowerEd in the post accompanies podcast episode. Number seven, ground flaxseed. In a double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized trial, 110 patients with peripheral artery disease consumed either 30 grams of ground flaxseed or placebo each day for six months. At the end of the trial, patients who received flaxseed lowered their blood pressure by 10 over 7 millimeters of mercury. And those who were hypertensive, that is a systolic blood pressure greater than 140 millimeters of mercury at baseline, had a greater reduction in systolic blood pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury. Number eight, hibiscus tea. In a randomized controlled trial, comparing the effects of hibiscus sabdorifa with the ACE inhibitor captopril on untreated hypertensives, a strong brew of hibiscus tea achieved equivalent reduction in blood pressure to the drug. Patients who drank hibiscus tea decreased their blood pressure by 15.3 over 11.3 millimeters of mercury. Number nine, water-only fasting. Remember that I urge you to listen all the way to the end because I was saving the best for last? Congratulations, you made it to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. The most effective therapy for hypertension ever published in the medical literature is, drumroll please, medically supervised water-only fasting, followed by refeeding with a low-fat, low-sodium, 100% plant-based diet. In a case series of 174 hypertensive people, that is, people with a systolic pressure greater than 140 millimeters of mercury and or a diastolic greater than 80 millimeters of mercury, the average drop in blood pressure after a water-only fast of between 10 and 11 days, followed by 6 to 7 days of refeeding, was 37 over 13 millimeters of mercury. Those with stage 3 hypertension, that's a systolic pressure greater than 180 millimeters of mercury and or a diastolic greater than 110 millimeters of mercury, had an average reduction of a whopping 60 over 17 millimeters of mercury at the conclusion of treatment. Compare this to the average reduction of 12 over 6 millimeters of mercury achieved by standard antihypertensive drug treatment. A second case series documented the effect of the same fasting refeeding protocol on 68 people with borderline or stage 1 hypertension, that's a systolic pressure between 120 and 139 millimeters of mercury and a diastolic pressure less than 91 millimeters of mercury. The average blood pressure reduction was 20 over 7 millimeters of mercury, with the greatest decrease being observed for subjects with the highest baseline blood pressure. Interestingly, the average decrease in blood pressure was not found to be significantly related to the amount of weight the subjects lost, indicating that fasting brings other blood pressure-lowering mechanisms into play. Reversal of insulin resistance and reduction of sympathetic nervous activity are strong contenders. Now, what if you aren't yet hypertensive? Most people still believe that a blood pressure of 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury is normal and therefore healthy. 
but that's simply not true. A cohort study, including 1,457 participants without atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, reported that, quote, beginning with a systolic blood pressure level of 90 millimeters of mercury, there was a stepwise increase in the prevalence of traditional atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk factors, coronary artery calcium, and the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. For every 10 millimeters of mercury increase in systolic blood pressure, there was a 53% higher risk for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, end quote. That's from a paper called Association of Normal Systolic Blood Pressure Level with Cardiovascular Disease in the Absence of Risk Factors. And a meta-analysis of nine prospective studies found that, quote, there did not appear to be any threshold below which a lower level of diastolic blood pressure was not associated with a lower risk of stroke or coronary heart disease, end quote. That's from a paper called Blood Pressure, Stroke and Coronary Heart Disease, Part 1, Prolonged Differences in Blood Pressure, Prospective Observational Studies Corrected for the Regression Dilution Bias. In other words, when it comes to unmedicated blood pressure, the lower the better. So even if you have not been diagnosed with hypertension, prehypertension or elevated blood pressure, if you want to drive your risk of stroke, coronary heart disease and heart attack as low as you can get it, you should be adopting at least the first six strategies that I outlined previously, as well as considering adding ground flaxseed and hibiscus tea to your diet, and I would advise exploring the benefits of periodic supervised water-only fasting. Now, if you're in Australia and you want to be put in touch with a very experienced fasting practitioner, the practitioner that I refer all of my clients to if they require fasting, just drop me a line. If you're in the US, you can contact True North Health Centre or the Fasting Escape, and I've included links to the websites of both these organisations in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And finally, I put many hours into producing these posts and podcast episodes. This one took me two solid days of researching and writing. If you feel you're getting value from reading my work or listening to it, please do consider a paid subscription, which you can sign up to at robintudor.substack.com. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials, and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.